Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Murder in Illinois is a production of iHeartRadio. So there's a sign that says, Welcome to Pinckneyville. And the churches of Pinckneyville welcome you. And it looks like there are about 20 churches. So, God in prisons. After months of letters and emails, COVID restrictions were lifted in May. And Bill Clutter and I were finally on our way to visit Chris. Right as we get closer to the prison, it's absolutely pouring. Saw a few forks of lightning. No thunder yet. Yeah, there are a lot of churches around here. Yeah, this is the buckle of the Bible Belt right here, Southern Illinois. As a result of good behavior during his time at Menard, Christopher Vaughn was transferred to the Pinckneyville Correctional Center in 2019, a medium security prison located in Perry County. This is it, the Pinckneyville Correctional Center. So it's kind of a sprawling brick facility surrounded by wire. It's not that old of a facility, I think, within the last You've 20, 20 or 25 years. So the parking lot looks pretty full. I'm assuming this is where we go in? It is. All right. I think I'll leave my cell phone. Okay, so we car. should be about two hours. I have my passport. I think we need two forms of photo ID. All right, make a run for it. Which is funny, I don't think most people say they're going to make a run for it as they're going into prison. Into prison, right. Foreshadowed by thunder. I'm Lauren Bright Pacheco, and this is Murder in Illinois. Just fast.
The check-in process at Pinckneyville was thorough and impacted by COVID protocol. We were vetted, masked, and temperature checked. No personal belongings, phones, or recording devices were permitted. After we were individually searched and patted down, we passed through a metal detector and two additional checkpoints before entering the cafeteria-like room where inmates were individually seated at small tables surrounded by four fixed stools. Each tabletop was divided into sections by high plexiglass, a COVID precaution. We were instructed to sit across from the inmate if possible, so only one of us could sit next to Vaughn. Acoustics were difficult as a result, especially when compounded by masks. After communicating through email for so many months, it was surreal to see and speak with Vaughn in person. The two and a half hours that initially felt overwhelming ended up passing quickly once we got used to raising our voices and leaning forward enough to hear and be heard. When we left and I got back into our car... Oh my gosh, that was... Really interesting. I was still trying to reconcile my expectations with the man I'd just met in prison. There was a bit of an element of of being taken aback because he is not imposing in terms of his height or his physicality. He comes across a little bit more tough in photos just because his head is shaven and he has a goatee but his mannerisms are so mild. There's a fragility to him that goes hand in hand with the introspective nature of how he speaks and expresses himself. Well, that's what kind of struck me because you get a sense that he's learned to survive in this environment and it can't be a, a pleasant experience now 14 years in prison. During our visit, Vaughn expressed the mental and emotional repercussions of our communication. He apologized for wavering. Apparently, he had a really tough December um, because I was asking him to access memories and feelings and emotions that he had kept compartmentalized for so long. Then he wrote the five-page letter, and then almost immediately... He was done. Yeah. And one of the things I wanted to clarify with him in our meeting was I always had concerns when he started out in that letter telling his parents he would fill in the gaps, that I was concerned that that some of the things he was describing may have been doing that. He had no idea what that noise was. It never occurred to him that there were gunshots happening within the car and he was in the quiet of a morning in a big open field and it was almost like this ominous kind of echoing in the field. He didn't put two and two together and it sounds like didn't until he got back in the car after he believes she shot three shots at him that she fired three times that's when he really, truly realized that the kids were all dead in the back seat. And at that point, she was dead as well. He acknowledged today that he's he's really unclear about the sequences of which shot occurred first, the wrist or the leg. But the one memory that he did have that was vivid and clear is closing his eyes to avoid looking at Kim and reaching 
and grabbing her seatbelt to try to fasten her seatbelt and struggling with it, and his hand was shaking. And that is consistent with the forensic evidence that large saturation stain on the on Kim's seatbelt. The clearest memory he has is after everything happened. I mean, he his description of leaning back in his seat and looking at the children, that explains the, the transfer stain that was on the, the back right side of his jacket. Back to the seatbelt and the version of the state that he somehow unbuckled her seatbelt to stage the crime scene makes no sense. Because his, his blood would have been on the actual yeah, female he, part of he the... He would have taken his thumb and depressed the seatbelt and you wouldn't have all that blood saturating the seatbelt. But his, his description of closing his eyes because he couldn't look at Kim's face that, I mean, just a, just a ghastly sight and reaching, grabbing the seatbelt, trying to buckle her and struggling to buckle because her arm is covering the, the, the female part of the buckle. All of that makes perfect sense and it, it, there's enough time for him to saturate that seatbelt strap with his left wrist injury. I mean, he acknowledged that that was the clearest memory he had of what he was describing the letter. That memory was about to be put to the test in a controlled scientific crime scene reconstruction. We connected with Gail and Pierre, who traveled to meet us after the visit to share more thoughts. He, he was very thankful and kind of surprised that anybody cared. He reiterated how grateful he's been for your support and how much that means. I was so taken aback that there's no, there's no anger, that he doesn't seem angry or bitter. I told him that I had a couple of questions and these are things that st- stuck out, particularly in terms of the press and the prosecution. And so much was made of the fact that he was wearing the same outfit. And so I asked him, why were you wearing the same clothes you wore to the shooting range? And he said because he was working most of the night, that he would often work in his study and then kind of catnap. But he brought all the clothes he was changing into. They were in the back of the car. Mm -hmm. But nobody said that. And the other thing that really came through, everything he said about the dynamic of their relationship and also that when Kimberly got that degree from Phoenix that took seven years, I think, to get, she was handed an empty diploma, Mm -hmm. but also learned that when she started calling, she thought that all of these doors would open to her because she had this degree, but it wasn't respected. And it didn't open doors, that people actually dismissed it because it was online. That's interesting. Yeah, and that that upset her deeply. And so that could have unfolded in real time. And could have led to her anxiety. Well, she still had a couple months to finish her degree, to completely finish it. She still had a couple months to go. Well, and in jest, when before all this happened, Chris was saying, Oh, yeah, now that you're going to be a college degree person, you can go out and make the big bucks, and I can quit and, and make wood in the garage and play with the kids. You know, it was all a joke back then. Then when it happened, I guess that was a different story. Well, he also talks about they had gotten to the point where 
they were going to stay together while the kids were in the house, but that eventually they would be leading separate lives. In July of 2021, I flew to meet Bill Clutter in Kentucky for the crime scene reconstruction that would recreate the events of June 14, 2007, under the direction of a seasoned crime scene investigator. My name's Katie Hartman. I'm a retired crime scene investigator from Louisville Metro Police Department. I worked for the Metro Police Department for 21 years. I started in communications and then tested to go into the crime scene unit. Hartman was secured by Bill Clutter to meticulously review the Vaughn case. Because of her lack of proximity, she was well-suited to approach the task. Well, I had no preconceived notions. I'd never heard of it since it didn't happen in Kentucky. I didn't know anybody involved. Police department, you establish contacts throughout the United States. And I had never heard of that case, so I didn't have any of those prejudices at all. In person, Katie Hartman comes across as no-nonsense and direct. She holds eye contact with a degree of scrutiny in keeping with her profession and reputation. She's built both by backing up instincts with science. She brought that same scrutiny to reviewing Bob Deal's original crime scene report. As a crime scene investigator, I really am impressed with his work. And I'm a critical person, <laughs> so I used to train people to do what I did. So I was looking at it very critical, you know, I was ready to give him, well, Bill, criticisms if need be, because I told Bill, I'll give you exactly what I think, good, bad, or in between. And my first comment to him was, this guy's good. It's really interesting, because, you know, he was discredited. I was told that after I read that, that he had been discredited. So I wasn't shocked because I'm not shocked by anything that happens. I've been victimized in that way also through the years, not in the same way he has, but it can be career altering. In addition to Deal's crime scene report, Hartman scrutinized the forensic evidence, bullet trajectory paths, and the trial transcripts. With his report standing alone, he was very thorough with his photographs, and it's very difficult to photograph a crime scene that is within a car because you can't mess up anything. You gotta lean in. You can't be at a 90 degree angle sometimes to take a photograph. But with the 3D imaging also, and his references, I felt like I was there. He referred to things and I could follow it as if I was with him and standing next to him. I did not make a, an opinion about whether or not this was a suicide, murder, or murders until I really looked at the trajectories. Hartman wouldn't be willing to share her opinion until testing it through multiple scenarios. But having read the crime scene report and trial transcripts, she did have initial issues with the way evidence was presented at Vaughn's trial. Given what the jury was given, I'm not surprised he was convicted because they weren't given everything. In my opinion, if I was on that jury and was only given that information, and this is more of a personal than a professional opinion, if I was someone who is not familiar with what to ask or what to expect of a case, I would have convicted him because everything wasn't put out there. 
Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. She's the shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I had Hartman break down exactly what the crime scene reconstruction would cover and test. This was to be the first of two reconstructions, the second with a ballistics expert who would further map out the exact trajectories. We're going to reenact what the prosecution stated about the blood on the seatbelt and blood on Kim and where Chris was shot. We need a visual and need to be able to look at it to see if it was possible what he said or if it was possible what they said. We're going to do all scenarios. We need to be completely unbiased in that we need to prove or disprove his story or their story, period. Hartman was clear that what would be revealed would not be tied to any agenda. When Bill asked me to be on this case, I, I told him, I'm the type of person that I'm not going to give you what you want to hear. If I think something isn't, no, doesn't fall along, I'm going to tell you. But that was my job. I, I was there to prove or disprove that someone did this. And if they did it, they did it. 
I, I could not look at anything else. I had no tunnel vision. Even if the person who did something maybe had done something before and wasn't the best person, well, that's not what I was there for. I'm there for that crime and whether or not we can prove who did it. The reconstruction's purpose was to test the multiple scenarios laid out for what could have happened that day to determine the most plausible and likely one based on the forensics of the crime scene without emotion. Hartman brought that same objectivity to Vaughn's five-page letter. It was always my job to look at something in the most unemotional way possible. I always was able to really do that I'm just not a very emotional person. Now think about who he's writing to. He's writing to his mom and dad. And he seems still hopeless. He's almost apologizing to his mom and dad that it's gonna be all brought up again. But as I read his description of what happened, it was believable to me as a crime scene person, if he had said that in his interview, it would have made all the difference. But that letter covered just one of the scenarios about to be reenacted. We're all gonna get the visual of every scenario. And that's important because you'd be amazed how you think about something in your head and everyone's different on how they hold things, how they move. Movement is almost unique to each person. So the way, if she shot herself, I wouldn't have shot myself that way. I would have held the gun probably differently. But that doesn't mean she didn't. The crime scene reconstruction took place July 15th, 2021, utilizing the exact make, model, and color of the Vaughn's family SUV and two actors named Nathan and Patty, who are approximately the same height and weights Chris and Kimberly Vaughn were at the time of the tragedy. It would be filmed by seasoned investigative journalist, director, and cameraman Ron Zimmerman, In addition to having worked on America's Most Wanted for 21 years, Zimmerman has a resume that includes CNN and 2020. To film the recreation, we wanted to cover all possible angles, things that you wouldn't see just by standing on one side of the car or the other. So we had three cameras, small GoPros, inside the car, one on the driver's side pillar, one near the rearview mirror, and one on the passenger side door pillar. Then there are two cameras outside the car, one outside the driver's window, handheld, and another one outside the passenger's window. The reason to have so many angles is that at certain times during uh, the events that happen inside the car, it's best to see it from a different angle. Otherwise, one camera or another is going to be blocked by somebody's body. And that's when the truth emerges, when you can see all the possible angles and even slow it down to take it frame by frame. Back to Bill Clutter. The first demonstration we're going to do is test the theory of the state that Chris unbuckled her seatbelt, bled onto the seatbelt, and and explains the pattern of bloodstains you see on on the passenger seatbelt. The mood was somber and filled with tension that was in keeping with what was being reenacted and what it could reveal. So I think what we'll do, Katie, is we'll position Patty and we'll do the positioning based on the crime scene photos and do the first demonstration where she's seatbelted and have him unseatbelt her. And then Katie get Patty positioned. 
Hartman and Clutter recreated each scenario to be tested by exhaustively referencing the crime scene photos and the crime scene reports. Each actor was placed in exact position and given the most basic directive in terms of motive or movement. Remember her feet were flat? She is slumped, yeah. Okay, so you're feeling where her arm was pushed up. The arm, this, what's important is how, where this left arm is, okay? To test the state's theory that Vaughn had unbuckled his wife after she was shot, the actress playing Kimberly was positioned exactly as Kimberly was photographed in the vehicle, with her left arm covering the belted buckle. The crime scene reports specifically state that her body did not appear to have been moved after she was shot. Hartman then walked the actor playing Vaughn through his action without dictating any specific directive in order to observe his intuitive movements. What we're doing is these red dots signify what your injury is, okay? Yes, ma'am. Red stickers were placed on places where both Chris and Kim were actually shot. So you have an abrupt injury, all right? Okay. Um, so even though you can't really mimic how it would hurt, and I don't really want you to, but what I want you to do is when we tell you to do something, instinctively, how would you move if you had injuries like that? Understood. Okay? Okay. Now, all I want you to do, don't overthink it, okay, is wait, wait, wait. What I want you to do is keep in mind you've been injured, right? Okay. And you reach over and unbuckle her seatbelt, period. That's it? That's it. Okay. Tell me when you want me to start. Go ahead. Like all the scenarios, this would be run multiple times, resetting everything before each take. If you keep your arms this way until he gets in here, you can actually just lean over and I can make sure you're in that position when we get ready. And each take showed the same result. Were you, did you have to move her arm in order to I, I did, yeah. In order to get past it, the arm needed to move because her elbow was... We just asked you to started. unbuckle her, though. I needed to move her elbow out of okay. the way. Right. That, that did happen. That's a good note. Yeah. Right, right. Was the, the female part of the class? You know, the class. elbow? No. The female the class, was under her okay. elbow? Yes, sir. Yeah, it was under her elbow that needed to be moved in order to get to that button. Each time the state's theory was tested to unbuckle the belt, the actor playing Christopher used his uninjured right arm to reach under the actress's upper left arm to access the belt. With injuries and, and you know, with some restricted movement to my arm, it would be difficult, and I feel like I would need to lean over this way and move a little more. So that's how I would do it. Doing so would have meant he would have passed through Kimberly's blood, which was pooling on the back of the center council, and none of Kim's blood was found on Chris Vaughn's right arm. Next up was the buckling of the belt. Let's just instruct him to buckle her without giving him the, the, the story of what happened, without showing him the photos. Yet. Right. To buckle her? To, yeah, just okay. to just to instruct him to buckle. All right, before we do the shocking photo, because Chris had said that he had his eyes closed, mm-hmm. we're gonna do have him buckle her now. Okay. See see what he does naturally. Hartman also had a theory she wanted to test. What I want you to do now is you've just been shot in the wrist. What's okay. the first thing you think you would do? What do you think? I would 
put pressure on the wound and elevate it. I, I'm, you know, that's what I would do. You would grab the wound because yeah. you're shocked. Oh right. my God, oh my God. And you'd right. grab it. Okay. And adrenaline's going to be pumping. Nathan immediately raised his left wrist and grabbed it with his right hand to stop the bleeding. So that just happened. And I want you to reach over and buckle her. So you've just been shot. Now, I didn't tell you to keep your hand there. You don't have to. I'm just saying what your first instinct was was to yeah, grab. Yeah, my first instinct is going to be to right. check it out and, and... And go, oh, but yet you still want to buckle her. So what do you do? Don't overthink it. Just do it. Reach over. And I would just do this as quick as I could. Now look, Bill, look. Are you... Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I you didn't do anything wrong. You no. just oh, did okay. what you need. We'd ask okay. you to do what you would do if your wrist hurt and you had grabbed it. The reason why I was telling you what would you do if you got hurt in your wrist but yeah. it was because I also think somebody would have put their hand on top of the wound. Each time the scenario was tested, the actor simply moved the actress's left arm and buckled her with his right hand. Keep in mind, both of his hands could have been covered with his own blood had he been clasping his wounded left wrist, so he would have left some prints on her left arm, which were not present at the actual crime scene. Next tested was the scenario covered in Chris's letter and his description of how he attempted to buckle his deceased wife. This was the first time the actor playing Chris was told any actual specifics of the case. And so this is a recent letter we received from Christopher Vaughn. Who is the person that you're playing? Okay. He's serving a life sentence in Illinois. He wrote this letter to his parents in March of 2021. And he says, she then turned the gun on herself and fired. And then I thought to drive the truck, Kim was slumped. So I tried to buckle her. My hands shook badly. I couldn't buckle the belt. He also should understand why his hands are shaking badly. He's been shot twice, Mm -hmm. but your three children are all dead in the backseat. So that's the emotion that's going through your head and part of why you're shaking. Adrenaline. Shaking violently. Yes. I would be. Now, your wife also has a single gunshot wound under her chin. And this is what he's looking at, and I, I apologize. No, it's okay. Mm. In order to understand Christopher Vaughn's movements, we have to address what he was reacting to. The crime scene photo of Kimberly Vaughn is extremely graphic. What it captures in person would have been even more so. She slumped to the left, her head tilted back over her left shoulder and facing the driver's seat. Her left eye is bulging from its socket, and the bullet that entered under her chin has severed her upper palate and teeth in two. So when we visited Chris in prison, we asked him to explain what was going through his head. And as an actor, I want you to see it because it's pretty telling. He stopped, he paused, he closed his eyes, and he cringed away from it. And then he threw his right arm around her as he leaned forward because he didn't want to touch or look at her as he was buckling. And then he used his injured left arm to assist his right arm. So that's what we would like you to keep in mind. Okay. All right? All right. Yeah. Can I see that photo one more time? One more time. Now that's right here. Think of where Patty's face is. 
that's her, okay? That close. Alright. Each and every time the actor recreated this scenario, we watched in silence, not wanting to interrupt what was being clearly illustrated each time. The movement Vaughn described seamlessly overlapped with the forensics in terms of where and how his blood appeared on the seatbelt, the buckle, where the droplets were found on the passenger floor, Kim's shirt, and the center console, in addition to how her blood transferred to the right back of his fleece. Yeah. I'm shaking. I see her. Don't give up. I think that's how I would do it. Okay. Next, they tested the state scenario of how Vaughn was alleged to have murdered his wife. It was equally as telling and compelling as the seatbelt. They first attempted it with Vaughn sitting in the driver's seat. This is the state's theory of the case, that Christopher Vaughn shot and killed his wife and then staged it to look like a suicide because this wound under her chin is a classic self-inflicted wound. So we want you to get her to cooperate while you kill her. So, and it has to look like a suicide. It can't be jammed hard against her chin because that didn't happen according to the autopsy, but it was kind of light contact, loose contact under her chin when it fired. Okay. And of course, Patty, you're alive and you have to assume that you're in a struggle for survival. And your, your babies are back here, all right? Mother bear. Mm-hmm. And you know what, we're making this assumption again. But in these reenactments, some assumptions need to be made because we, we are trying to think of how we would act as humans. Yeah. Human beings. So Patty, you know, you're a mom. You know how you would act. You know, it's... it's I would have gotten a vaccine. Even just acting, the reenactment participants drew blood trying to get into position. And it happened when the actors were seated in the front seats and when the actor playing Chris was positioned outside the passenger window in keeping with Sergeant Gary Lawson's theory. All right, and action. This... Is that blood? That is blood, yes. Jeez, oh, my God. In. Oh. I hope I didn't hurt him. Here, see you okay? Eventually, they came to the scenario where the actor playing Chris shot the kids from the driver's seat to test all possibilities. So, okay. Each child is shot twice, once in the abdomen, once in the head. So you're going to be aiming for these targets. Wow. There. Okay. This was one of the many moments of that day that underscored the brutal, tragic reality of what transpired in that SUV 14 years ago. But every possibility needed to be explored and tested without bias or emotion. Think of it, okay? You've got three kids here. Head, torso, head, torso, head, torso. I mean, I don't know if it was that order or not. Okay. But just, I want to see, we want to see how you would be able to shoot them. I'm not injured. If you go on their theory or not, not yet. Okay. Because they think he shot himself. And where's he going to shoot from here? From here? From over there? He's going to sit in the driver's seat. Pat, I don't even... Yeah, we do. You need to be here because your head might be in the way. Now, you've already shot Patty, okay? She's deceased, okay. She's deceased. Seatbelt on. Lay like you were. There you go. All right. Okay. Ready, Bill? Yeah. Okay. So I just shot. I just shot her. 
Boom, boom. Do you see how you had to? Yeah. Okay, good. That's good. That's good, okay. Next, they tried out the scenario with Chris standing outside the car. Immediately, the height of the actor portraying the five foot nine Vaughn stood out in stark contrast with the size of the large SUV. First, with the door shut and supposedly the windows down, uh, I want you to shoot the kids. From this? Yeah. One, two, one, two, one, two. Okay, okay. did y'all see that? He would have had to reach in over Patty. Yeah, yeah. And, and feel free to like stand on the running board yeah. to get the one you can with the most reach you can get. Yes, these are these are shot with precision. The kids were headshots. Yeah. So what I think would be very, very difficult was for the little boy. The way I mean, two girls are the trajectories crazy, but we're wanting to see how he could have even done that. So yeah. it's really interesting that in every single scenario he's reached to the left of her seat. Each time the actor portraying Chris tried to make the shots that would have hit Blake seated directly behind the passenger seat, he did so by moving the gun from the center of the vehicle to the left of the passenger seat headrest, which was not consistent with the actual trajectory, according to ballistic evidence. I guess what I'm trying to say, the natural movement of a person trying to reach back there and kill those kids would have been crazy trajectory and very hard to do. I agree. I mean, it's possible. Of course it's possible. But it doesn't match up. Yeah, I don't see how Yeah, he's got his hand in here and everything. So, okay, now, one more. Doors open, and you're killing the kids. Look, that that last one is what gets him from either any of these, you know? He's bracing himself with his left arm. All right. Watching the actor struggle to keep his balance on the sideboard with his left arm as he tried to lean into the SUV far enough to make the trajectories of the shots fired with precision over the actress's left side, called to mind the original CSI Bob Deal's words after Sergeant Gary Lawson expressed his theory the day of the murders. It was friggin' impossible. Next, Hartman gave the actress playing Kim a directive. Hey, now, Patty? Mm-hmm. While we're filming, you're alive. Turn around and kill the kids. How would you shoot people in the back seat? Just do the movement. Ready? Okay, go ahead, Penny. Boom, boom. Boom, boom. Okay, I just wanted to see the angle. All right, um, now take it off. Do the same thing. Ready? Mm-hmm. See how she's leaning up? Mm-hmm. Yep. Changes the angle totally. Unbelted, the actress seated in the passenger seat instinctively and rapidly recreated trajectories in keeping with the bullets fired into the back seat. If he were to have come back to the car, he's getting back in, and yeah, he thought he heard an explosion or something in the car, and she's waiting for him. After hours of running multiple scenarios, the ultimate conclusion was that the prosecution's version of what happened would have been extremely implausible, if not impossible. Here's seasoned crime journalist Ron Zimmerman, who filmed the reconstruction. I've done hundreds of reenactments for shows like America's Most Wanted and Unsolved Mysteries. And this one stands above a lot of those for a number of reasons. When you really examine the reenactment point by point by point from all these different angles, you really see how Christopher's explanation to his parents in a letter rings true. 
this didn't come out at the time of interrogation, didn't come out at the time of trial. It, he didn't try to build a story to explain his behavior away to investigators like us. But it was 14 years later that this all came out in a letter to his parents where he just tried to get to the honest truth of it. And it, it's searingly honest, that letter to his parents about what happened. Kim shot the kids. She shot Christopher. Then she shot herself. And then he tried to buckle her in and failed at that. He, it wasn't successful buckling her in, but he'd left a trail of blood. All of those are things that we can see. The blood evidence doesn't lie. It tells the story and it tells the true facts of what happened. Katie Hartman agrees. The physicality of all of this does not match with what the prosecution said happened, or Lawson, or any of them. Deal was right. Deal was right. Deal was right. Oh, yeah, he was right. I am the last person that's going to say a policeman was wrong. (laughs) I am. But when they're wrong, they're wrong. Hartman believes Deal's break with the official version of events would not have been without consequences. Other police don't like other police that aren't being honest. So Deal, sadly, he was in a bind, a career-ending bind, but it's my opinion that Deal was right. Really, the evidence shows that it did not happen the way the prosecution said. No, not I mean, we, we proved that. And the crime scene reconstruction aligned with Christopher Vaughn's five-page letter. Here's Bill Clutter. It is my opinion that Chris's statement to his parents disclosed in uh, March of 2021 does explain how the the blood got on the seatbelt and the left leg and arm of his wife. That does explain all of the blood that was found of Chris's, and Bob Deal had it right all along. The crime scene was consistent with with the murder-suicide. The state's theory as to how Chris's blood got on the seatbelt and on his wife's body, it simply didn't happen the way they said it did. The seatbelt was such a critical piece of evidence that based on that alone, I think we've proven there's sufficient evidence to vacate the conviction. I called Gail and Pierre with my thoughts as soon as I got back to the hotel. I can tell you with absolute confidence, having seen what I saw today, that we're able to very effectively show what happened that day was not what the courtroom was privy to. Oh my gosh, Lauren, that's... It's like I knew it in my heart. And I knew he didn't do it. But now we have evidence for, you know, everybody to look at. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. 
Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Once Bill had put together an initial summary of the crime scene reconstruction findings, we reached out to update Jason Flom. I sent you a a draft of my report, but um, in a nutshell, we tested the state's theory that Christopher unbuckled his wife's seatbelt somehow to stage the crime scene. It was interesting that when we gave the actor instructions to unbuckle the seatbelt, the passenger seatbelt, he uses his right hand, has to actually move the left arm of our actress and depresses it with his right hand without a left arm, which is bleeding over the body of Kimberly. So that really debunks the state's theory that Christopher staged the crime scene by unbuckling his wife's seatbelt. The second demonstration we did was to role play what Chris described that he reached around his wife to to grab the passenger seatbelt in an attempt to buckle her in because he thought about driving away to get help. The movements of that scenario really explains how Chris's passive blood drops from his left wrist bled over the top of his wife because in making that reach the left hand arcs over the female actress, and it's totally consistent with where we find Chris's blood. So that letter 
and his explanation of the movement overlap seamlessly in Bill's opinion and in Katie Hartman, the CSI from Kentucky. And we were able to repeat it multiple times. I can't help thinking as we're having this conversation that probably a significant percentage of the general public believes or wants to believe that this type of stuff is done pre-conviction, right? Or pre-trial. And that our system works because people get a fair shake and, you know, you get to present this evidence and CSI. But I think we need to believe it works properly because otherwise the default is to say, oh no, this could happen to me. And nobody wants to believe that. Nobody can believe that. I think that this case is so important because Christopher could be any one of us. He was a guy who I think may be easier to relate to than some other people that are caught up in our system for a lot of people. You know, here's a guy on the way to an amusement park with his family, working a good job, seemingly American dream type of stuff. In an instant, everything turns to shit, right? It's, it's a lot. So I'm sure for your audience, this is a lot to process, you know? And for Chris, he's, he's still living it every minute of every day. That reality was underscored by another takeaway from the crime scene reconstruction. When we tasked the actors to have that final shot, both actors drew blood in just trying to get into position that there was just in the act of trying to put the gun underneath, there was bruising and there was blood and they weren't going at it full strength. So it is very telling that there is no sign of a struggle. Kimberly Vaughn's nails were scraped. There is no DNA belonging to Chris Vaughn. There were no scratch marks. There was no pulled hair. There were no bruises on their arm. There was nothing to suggest that she was held in place while a gun was placed ever so slightly apart from the soft area of her chin. Any mother would fight to the death in a situation like that because she's got her kids. Whether the kids were still alive or not, in whichever scenario you want to paint, if they had already been shot, she would have been like a cat, right, with with the claws. I mean, think about any parent, right, what they would do to somebody, regardless if it's their husband or anyone who had just murdered their children. Right. Or if they're still alive, you'd be fighting to keep them alive and to keep this gun away from yourself and them. And Bill, let me ask you this, because you're the expert. Right. So I'm just thinking she was shot under the chin. Right. Which is a classic thing that people do when they take their own lives with a gun. Not everybody, but it's sort of common. But my question is just in terms of strength and leverage. Right. I mean, Chris is not a huge, powerful guy. And if he was to stick his arm up in a position where the gun would be pointing upwards, his arm would be weak in that position, right? And she would have a relatively easy time because she would have the leverage to be able to take her hand with her downward strength and push his arm down, right? At a very minimum, the shot would have been wild because he would have had no ability to keep his hand with the gun positioned under her chin for even a second long enough to get off a shot if she was making even a modest attempt to push his arm down. No, that's absolutely right. Let's think of this logically. So then he's going to sort of gently go, honey, hold still for a second. 
I'm just going to gently place my hand with this pistol, which you can plainly see, up under your chin, very, you know, calmly, and 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 you will just hold motionless. No, I mean, no. Yeah, that didn't happen. As you pull back these layers, it becomes so painfully obvious. I mean, I'm just going to come out and say it. It's not what happened. Um, and that's why we're here. As I finished this episode, I reached back out to Katie Hartman for her final analysis after having some time to process both the reconstruction and Bill's report. My thoughts from that day were many. What was alleged to have happened by the prosecution, we were able to disprove. And what was the defense's explanation wasn't fully brought to a conclusion either. In your opinion, Based on what the crime scene reconstruction revealed, do you believe that there is reasonable doubt that Christopher Vaughn killed his wife and three children that day? Very much so. We went from everything from Christopher, as the prosecution alleges, shooting from the outside. We went to Christopher shooting from the inside. Christopher shooting with the passenger door open and shooting Kim and the kids. Christopher with the door closed and shooting Kim and the kids. And none of those things were possible with the angles that the 3D presented. It was shocking, to be honest, that it was even brought to trial. And it ended up, at the end of the day, the most logical way was that Kim did it. And that's that's hard for me to say. That it's a murder-suicide. Yeah. And that's hard because it's terrible that these three babies died, but it's hard to, to look at it and see that the man's in prison because a lot of people got tunnel vision and didn't didn't listen and had already figured out in their minds what happened. final episode of Murder in Illinois, the daunting hurdles that remain for Christopher Vaughn. The prosecutors who got it wrong are always the last to admit that they made a mistake. Are met with some impressive offers of assistance. We've had nine exonerations, and my goal is to make Mr. Vaughn the tenth. And a very significant spotlight. Murder in Illinois is a production of iHeartRadio. Executive producers are Lauren Bright Pacheco and Taylor Shacoin. Written by Lauren Bright Pacheco and Matthew Riddle. Story editing by Matthew Riddle. Editing and sound design by Evan Tyre and Taylor Shacoin. Featuring music by Cicada Rhythm. With new compositions engineered and mixed by Evan Tyre and Taylor Shacoin. For 
more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get the stories that matter to you. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.